I just want to take a moment for us all to just kind of sit in that. I surrender all. All to Jesus, I surrender. That is what the Christian life is all about. Giving your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, everything to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. And it's not unto us, Lord, it's not unto us, but it's unto your name that we give glory and we surrender all as a people. Father, as Smithfield Baptist Church, we want to surrender all unto you. We want to make much of you. We want to declare and herald your truths. And we pray that as we enter into Jonah chapter 3, that we would be helped by your word and that you would be magnified and that your grace would be made much of and that we would be in awe of the power of God to save sinners and that we would be in awe of your work in our lives that Jonah chapter 3 matters to us and I pray, Lord, that your spirit would fall on us now, that you would anoint me, that I might preach your word faithfully and truthfully and accurately and self-forgetfully, Lord, that you would be honored, that your spirit would minister to our hearts now. And we pray that you would bless and that you would encourage and that you would stir and convict and heal and build us up, O oh God. And meet with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple weeks back, if you remember, we had Jonah in the belly of the beast. And one of the last things he says is, salvation belongs to the Lord. His heart cry to us is, salvation belongs belongs to the Lord. I mean, that's Jonah's heart for us. That's Jonah's heart as he is getting ready to be spewed out onto dry land to go on a mission that he was meant to do, if you remember back in chapter 1. And you got to be thinking, Jonah is in the belly of the fish crying out salvation belongs to the Lord in a heart cry unto God. And he's remembering the word of the Lord came to Jonah at one point and Jonah said no. And then you have Jonah going from a place of saying no to running all the way to Tarshish as fast as he can, getting on a ship and being among pagan sailors fast asleep. And what does God do? He sends a storm after him. And if that's not enough, God uses the sailors to rebuke him and then he gets cast out into the sea. And so God sends a storm and then God sends a fish into swallow up Jonah. And Jonah is learning all through this process that salvation belongs to the Lord. 
And he still might be thinking in his heart as he is commissioned to go to Nineveh that it is not going to happen. You're going to send me there, God, and nothing's going to happen. Yes, you sent... Yes, you sent the fish. Yes, you sent the storm after me. Yes, you cast the lot and it fell on me. Yes, you saved pagan sailors, but surely you cannot save Nineveh. They're far too wicked and they don't deserve it. And yet he is vomited on to dry land. And he is given a mission to herald a message of judgment to an undeserving people. And the novelist Philip Dick once wrote a novel called Man in the High Castle. And the whole point of this book is about what would happen if Nazi Germany actually won in World War II? What would our world look like, right? What would it look like if Hitler was in power and he was in control? And where would we be in 2021 now if the Nazis won it all? That would be a horrifying place to be. And yet Jonah chapter 3 is about a vision of what would it look like if Nazi Germany actually repented on the preaching of the Jewish prophet? What would it look like if Nineveh actually repents, actually experiences a revival of magnificent proportion. Nowhere in the history of the world has a whole nation repented of its sin and turned to God. And yet, this is what we see in the pages of Scripture in Jonah chapter 3. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that we should weep tears of joy over what happened to Nineveh, and we should be reminded that this is the only hope for any one of us, that God would be merciful to actually save sinners who are undeserving and unworthy. So read with fresh eyes, read this text with me of Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it a message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breath. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. 
And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let not man or beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. And let everyone turn from his evil and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them. And he would not do it. Be staggered by this passage. Be in awe of this passage. Be helped at the beautiful, magnificent picture of an awesome God who is both fierce in his anger at sinners, just and holy, and yet compassionate and merciful. And as the king said, who knows? God may yet relent and turn from his fierce anger. And we may not perish. We serve an awesome God and a compassionate God. We serve a God that you will tremble before in your sin. And yet at the same time, you will call out to him with compassion and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And He will run toward you. He will run toward you with compassionate grace and rescue you. So I want to look at Jonah in chapter 3. And we're going to look at it in, in just three pivotal truths that are going to help us navigate this passage. Number one, Jonah gets a rematch. Number two, Nineveh's repentance. And number three, God's gracious response. So let's take that one at a time. Number one, Jonah's rematch. Look at verse number one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The word of God comes to Jonah a second time. We remember he blows it in chapter one and the very same thing is said. And now God is giving him another chance. This is like a Rocky movie, right? You know, Rocky gets beat up by some challenger and it's bad. And he just licks his wounds and he's learning some stuff and some soul discovery. And then, you know, the theme song plays and he gets his rematch. He gets his rematch and he goes into the ring and it's a new start and a new beginning. And Jonah is getting another shot. He's getting a second chance. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who gives second chances? Aren't you glad that we serve a God who gives a new beginning? How many of us in here need a new beginning? How many of us in here need another shot? Maybe you've blown it. 
Maybe you've been like Jonah and you've been struggling and you've been taking a trip to Tarshish and you need to turn around and get right with God and He's a God of another chance. And as long as we are breathing, He is merciful to give us another chance. Just as He did... I mean, consider all the times in Scripture where we see God's gracious second chances. Moses was a murderer. He murdered an Egyptian. And yet God raises him up and sends him to be the one to deliver people from Pharaoh and Pharaoh's oppression and slavery. And he's like, I was just reading about this today. He's like, Lord, I can't go. I can't do this. I, I, I can't talk. I'm not a good speaker. And God's like, I've got this. Who made your mouth, Moses? Who made your tongue, Moses? Who's the one who makes people mute? And who's the one who gives deaf people hearing? Who's the one who can do things that nobody else can do? I am the Lord. Moses gets another shot. And then we've got David, who was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who loved to live for God. And he gets caught in adultery. He gets caught and he tries to cover it up and his life becomes a mess. And what does God do? He sends the prophet Nathan to him and it says, you are the man, David. You are the one in sin. And David repents, much like Nineveh. And he gets a second chance. And God begins to use him. And then lest we think this is kind of an Old Testament thing and, and God's not doing this anymore, we have the Apostle Peter who's like, Lord, I will never deny you. Never, never, never. Bring it on. Let me get my sword out. And what does he do? He's warming himself by the fire and they arrest Jesus and somebody asks him, are you a follower of Christ? Aren't you one of those Galileans? And he says, no. I'm not. And they ask him again. No, I'm not. And they ask him again. And he pronounces a curse on himself and says basically, let me go straight to hell. I'm not one of them. I don't follow this man. And then after Jesus' resurrection, what happens to the Apostle Peter is Jesus approaches him and says to him with tenderness in his heart, he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? He's like, yes, Lord, I love you. Well, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then he says it for the third time. Because Jesus wanted Peter to know that he was restoring him. You might deny me three times, but I'm going to restore you. And then Peter goes out and preaches a sermon on Pentecost that is like the New Testament equivalent of Jonah. And 3,000 souls are added. Cut to the heart. What must we do to be saved? And he says, repent and believe. And 3,000 people are added to the church just like that. That's the power of the God who is gracious to give second chances. But notice that Jonah doesn't just get this gracious second chance, but verse 2 and 3 say this, Arise, 
Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, about three days' journey in breath. So you've got to imagine Jonah being spit out of the belly of a fish onto dry land. Nineveh's about 500 miles away, and Jonah's got to resolve to obey God, go on this long trek to Nineveh. He's probably bleached white because of the gastric acid in, in the fish's belly, and so he's not looking too hot, and he actually goes to Nineveh knowing that he might face imminent death. This is a different Jonah than the one we saw in chapter 1. This is a Jonah who now has godly resolves. This is a Jonah who the text says obeys the word of the Lord and actually goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And Nineveh was a great city. And if you see in your margin... There's probably a footnote that talks about the great city saying, actually in the Hebrew, a great city to God. Because Nineveh was a city that God actually cared about. Lest we think that God is just writing people off and there's no hope for certain people in this world, God wants us to know that He has compassion for even the wicked Las Vegas Nineveh, right? God has compassion for Louisville. God has compassion for our nation. But He is also a fierce, just, holy God. He is both wrathful towards sinners and He is gracious and He cares. And Jonah is actually cued in to the heart of God now and honoring the Lord by going. And notice that verse 2 says that he goes with a message that God is going to tell. That, brothers and sisters, is our call, right? You are called to take the message of God to the world. And Jesus taught that we were to be witnesses, right? Acts 1.8. You shall be witnesses. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll receive power and you'll become witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that doesn't stop at Louisville, brothers and sisters. This is a message and a mission that we are called to. And Jonah, in our text, has no idea that a revival is about to hit. And brothers and sisters, you and I do not know what God will do if we will but be faithful to proclaim His message. He does not need a cleaned up messenger. He does not need a messenger that has a good track record. Look at Jonah. God can use you if you've fumbled and you've failed and you feel afraid. And if you step up and you say, I'm going to go. I may have messed up before. I may have not said things the right way, but I'm going to be faithful. Who knows what the Lord might do? He could flip Smithfield on its head. He could flip Henry County on its ear because the people of God have wakened to the grace of God and the power of the Gospel. That's good news. 
And Jonah was faithful to go to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. But what do we see also in this idea of our job is to communicate the message? It really frees us up to be seed scatterers. We scatter the seed, God brings the increase. And we're reminded in the book of Romans that this is the way God always does business. His people get faithful to preaching the word, and then God does a work. Romans chapter 10 says, How then will they call on him who they not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Or how can they hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So the, the logic goes like this. Nobody will believe if preachers don't go out. Nobody will believe if Christians are not sent out into the world to declare a message. And once they're sent, then people hear and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ and hearts are made alive. And Jonah chapter 3 is yet one more testimony to the power of God to use somebody to speak a word, even against all odds. God gets his message in there and glorious things happen. Revival happens when the word is proclaimed and the church first responds in heartfelt humility and contrition and says, God, we've blown it. But Lord, awaken again, awaken the nations and we begin to be gripped. And then we go out and take the message to the world. That's how revivals are born. It's not something that we can manufacture. It's not something that you can go and just decide, I'm going to have a revival on this day. God's Spirit has to actually move and God's people have to cry out for God's power to come. And that's what happened in Jonah chapter 3. Notice verse 4 tells us a little bit about Jonah's message. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out five Hebrew words, and it's like eight in our English um, translations. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Nineveh shall be overthrown in 40 days. And you might be thinking, what does that mean? Does that mean that they're going to be destroyed? Does that mean that they're going to be overthrown? Is this a message that's coming with conviction? Is this a message that's certain? God is heralding through his prophet a message that judgment is coming. But I don't want you to read it as a compassionless message. It is a message of merciful warning. It is a message that comes with a time limit, right? 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And you should have things ringing in your ears like God brought a flood for 40 days and 40 nights. God tested Jesus in the wilderness for 
40 days, he was tempted by Satan. For 40 years, Israel wandered in the wilderness. This idea of 40 is a number of testing. God was giving Nineveh an opportunity to respond to the message. And it must have been a sight to see Jonah come in and actually come into that city, probably white as a ghost, and go from corner to corner. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's not the most thundering sermon, right? That's not the most... There wasn't a bunch of illustrations. There wasn't a bunch of things that were, were designed to kind of keep people's interest. No, this was a prophet coming filled with the Spirit of God. And God's power began to fall on people. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's powerful, powerful stuff. So we see that Jonah gets his rematch and Jonah is faithful and God blesses the faithfulness. Point number two, Nineveh's repentance. This is shocking repentance. This is powerful repentance. Verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God and they were called they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them i read this this passage this morning and i nearly weeped at the powerful reality that a nineveh wicked las vegas like nazi germany people would actually repent at the words of jonah that somebody who was so wicked that they were enslaving people, they were committing horrible sexual immorality, they were abusive to their women, they were wicked and carnal in ways that would make Sodom and Gomorrah blush. And yet, this people at the preaching of Jonah would repent in an entire city-wide repentance. Not even Billy Graham got that kind of response at his cru crusades. Billy Graham, people repented at his preaching, but not a universal city-wide repentance. This is a powerful work of God in the hearts of the people. And you will notice two things happen. They believe God and they take Him at His word. They just believed the message. They believed that what Jonah preached came from God Himself right to their hearts. And they were cut to the quick. And they actually recognized their sin. They actually started thinking, we're wicked. We're under God's judgment. We're actually going to one day experience His wrath if we don't turn around right now. And if you look... Right. If we're if we're looking at the book of Jonah, look at the king's response from the greatest to the least. All repented the highest strata of society in government, the president, right, the king to the lowest peasant, all repented. 
with sackcloth and ashes and their symbols of warning. And the king is so afraid that he does the unthinkable. Could you imagine Hitler renouncing his power, throwing dust and sackcloth on himself, kneeling before God and just crying out, please save me. You can't imagine it. You cannot imagine a man that wicked doing something that drastic. And look at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne and he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. This is a king who takes his royal robes and exchanges it for a filthy, coarse horse blanket, throws it on himself, and then sits in an ash heap crying out to God. And if that's not enough, he's so scared before the judgment of God that he issues an edict and a decree in verse 7. He says, A proclamation will be published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let the man and the beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And let every one of us turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows, God may relent and turn and, and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. He was so scared he had the animals fasting. He had the animals in sackcloth. He had people everywhere with a message of repentance. Please repent. Who knows if God will relent? And I want to look real quick at the anatomy of repentance here. You're going to see five characteristics of repentance in this passage. Number one you have humility before God. The king himself strips himself of his royal robes and throws himself in a heap of ashes. Kneeling before God. Bowing before God. Humble. And then he asks the whole city to follow his example. Number two, there's a serious grief over sin. There's a serious grief that what he has done, what the city has done, their violence and their wickedness has come up before God and judgment is coming and they are grieved in their sin. So there's humility, there's grief over sin, and then number three, there's a calling out to God in earnest prayer. Look at verse... Um, Eight, it says, let everyone, or I'm sorry, verse eight, it says, let them call out mightily. That's language of earnest, heartfelt, real prayer up to God. Please, God, do not destroy us. Please, we are sorry. We are, we trust you. We believe on you. We kneel before you. There's a, there's a sense of gravity before God and blood earnest crying out to God. 
that's happening on a citywide scale. And then lastly, there's a turning from sin and wickedness. Look, it says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. All true repentance is a turning away from real sin towards the Lord. It's a turning away from a life of rebellion, a life of walking in your own way, a life of proud-hearted arrogance, a life of wickedness that pursues other things and makes them God substitutes. And it can be anything. This city had twisted so badly that they were perverting the straight ways of God on every level. The king was perverting his power. The people were committing violence against one another. The king had a, a desire to destroy city after city after city, and Nineveh was known for its wickedness. And we said at the beginning of this series, they would pile pyramids of skulls of the people they conquered. They would be so ruthless in the ways that they conquered a people that it was disgusting and I can't even share with you some of the things that they did. But here we see a turning from those very things away from their evil and from the violence that was in their hands. And then lastly, brothers and sisters, look at verse 9. Verse 9 may be one of the most powerful verses in this passage who knows this is faith looking to god who knows god may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish god is gracious and he is leaning towards those who humble themselves before him he gives them grace but he resists the proud hearted man and the king of Nineveh gets it he realizes we have to throw ourselves at the mercy of God and in faith do all of these things humbly cry out to him really repent from our sin and actually ask God to come and rescue us I remember being on a plane flight um a while back for business and I was talking to a guy and he had been reading the case for Christ. He was not a believer and he had told me, you know, I believe the facts of Christianity are true. I believe the gospel is actually true. I believe Jesus really died and rose from the dead. He said all of those things, but he said, you know what? I do not want to give up my life of sin. I don't want to give up my sexually immoral relationship. He had actually committed adultery he had ruined his first marriage and he was working on another relationship that he thought would be the end all and he said you know i believe all these things are true but i am not going to repent of my sin i love my sin too much he did the opposite of what nineveh did here and i asked him i said what would it profit you if you gained the whole world, if everything you had at your fingertips that you could get, but you lost your soul, 
Jesus asked that question of every one of us. What would it profit if you gain the whole world, but you forfeit your soul? And this man had destroyed his life, but it was never enough. Sin just kept compelling him to go after it. There was a hardening. There wasn't a sense of gravity before God about his sin. And this, brothers and sisters, is what God calls us to. He calls us to awaken to our need before him and to say with the king of Nineveh, who knows, God may perhaps relent of his anger towards us and forgive us. That is the heart cry of a man who realizes that Jesus is a glorious Savior. For unto us a son was born, unto us a son was given, and he is called Christ the Lord. He's the one who came from heaven to earth to die on a cross, to rise from the dead three days later, to give life to people just like the Ninevites. And this man I was talking to on the plane didn't want any of it. He wanted to affirm the truth, but he didn't want to personally trust Jesus with his life. And brothers and sisters, that is the opposite of what we see happening in Nineveh. That's why I marvel at this passage, because a whole city would repent in a heartfelt, real way when so many are so hard and resist the Word of God. Quickly, the last point. God's response. God's response. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God is oozing with grace towards repentant sinners. He is bleeding grace towards us. He sent his son to be nailed to a tree so that you and I could be forgiven if we will but believe. And that is the message that heals the nations. That is the message that calls people out of every tribe, tongue, and nation to be a part of his glorious kingdom, a redeemed kingdom where men are made new, where they exchange their wickedness for the royal robes of Christ where they exchange the, the sin for a Savior. This is the beauty of God's mercy towards you and I, and he did it in Nineveh a thousandfold. There were 12, or 120,000 children alone, and you add to that, there were hundreds of thousands of people that God was gracious towards. The last verse of the book, the very end, if you go to chapter 4 and verse 11, God cries out his heart and he says, Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle? God 
desires that none perish, but all come to repentance. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than at 99 just persons. God throws a party in heaven when people repent of their sin. And Jonah was ready to receive mercy personally, but he wasn't a big fan of celebrating God's mercy towards others, as we'll see next week. Jonah was excited to get out of the belly of the fish. He was called on a mission. He was proclaiming the Word of God boldly. He wanted to be faithful. And then when God actually saves the Ninevites, his heart is broken because he'd rather receive mercy from God than give mercy and see God be merciful to a wicked city like that. Now, this passage shows us that God moves from fierce wrath to gracious love and rescue when sinners believe and repent. That's the heart of God for us. But please know that this was God's design from the beginning. Why did he send Noah or why did he send Jonah to begin with? Because he had a heart for Nineveh. Why did he send Jonah and put him through all of the things that he went through to assure that his message would come to this wicked city? Because he purposed the whole time to bring about their repentance. God was after their hearts. As wicked as they were, they were a testimony and monument of his grace. And I'm reminded of the story of George Palmer, who was a, basically a gangster in Australia, Melbourne, Australia. He was a gang member. And one day he had heard Billy Graham was coming and he was going to hold his revivalistic crusades. And he didn't like Billy very much. and He didn't like people calling him a sinner. And so he went and he, he plotted with his friends. He said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go, we're going to get a couple zip guns, and when it's time for Billy to give the invitation, we're going to run up and we're going to shoot him in the head. He had planned to murder and assassinate Billy Graham at one of his own crusades. But they waited until the message was over. And an interesting thing happened as they were listening to the message. God's Spirit began to move powerfully and effectually, and they began to tremble before the holiness of God. They began to quake in their sin. They began to realize we've been living immoral lives. We've been totally addicted to pornography. We've been addicted to violence. We've been addicted to drugs. We've been addicted in all of these ways, and we're slaves. And right there in the middle of the crusade, they began to tremble and something was happening, stirring in their souls and they dropped their zip guns. And nine of the ten of them that had come were converted as Billy Graham preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. 
And George Palmer, who was a hardened criminal, gave his heart to the Lord, admitted his sin before a holy God, and said and cried out to God, will you save me? Will you have mercy on me? And he repented there on the spot. Unless you think that this was just, you know, some scenario way out there, George Palmer began to serve the Lord faithfully as a member of the Salvation Army. He became a colonel or something in the Salvation Army and faithfully witnessed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and served people in self-forgetful, Christ-honoring, servant-hearted, gospel-loving ways and that only happens when the grace of God falls on you and your eyes are open and you're renewed and what happened at Nineveh happens to you. And that's what happened to George Palmer. So I want to have quick three, three quick applications as we're sitting under the reality and beauty of George Palmer's testimony, we are reminded with Jonah that God gives merciful warnings, that God took a reluctant prophet and he swallowed him with a fish and spit him out on dry land and sent him to Nineveh to warn them. And God is warning anybody who is living a double life who may be reading Christian outwardly, but inwardly their hearts are far from God and God is calling them to repent today. God is saying, do not give me lip service, but give me your heart and turn from a life of duplicity and trust in me. Number two, we're reminded that judgment really is coming on sinners that God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. Acts 17, the Apostle Paul reminds us that God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world. It will come as surely as the dawn comes in the morning. Please know, brothers and sisters, that we preach a message that has to begin with the judgment of God on sinners in need who have been beautifully made and fearfully and wonderfully made by God, but they've rebelled and they need to hear that God is wrathful towards them. But they also need to hear that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we need to get that balance right or we don't have a gospel. There is no good news without bad news, brothers and sisters. There is no good news if we do not proclaim the bad news. So no, judgment is coming. And God's white-hot wrath was atoned for on a cross so that you and I could be forgiven. Jesus experienced the full brunt of that wrath on himself. And lastly, you may be coming under discouragement on some level and thinking, well, I'm not all good. I am running from God or I have blown it. And please know, God is a God of second and third and fourth chances. So turn to the Lord with renewed resolve and commitment to live for him. For the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would be working in our hearts real repentance where there is repentance needed, real gospel fervor where we need to be fired up about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and a real sense that you will use us, weak, feeble, often failing, but oh God, you'll use us if we will but step out in faith. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn from the message of Jonah chapter 3, that you are a merciful God and that you will pursue your people with grace and mercy. And I pray that you would minister to our hearts and that we would go out into the world with joyful proclamation, preaching the justice of God and the mercy of God, the love of God and the wrath of God, the life of God for sinners who will turn and believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.